Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 116, and today I'm talking about what the early Christians believed concerning superstition. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith, and please go check out my book. Audio Kindle versions and paperback versions are available on Amazon. Please go check that out, and if that's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review there. For some reason, they took down one of the reviews, which was pretty strange, but uh, yeah, I'd really appreciate it if y'all would take the time to do that. Also, every month I put out two videos on my Patreon channel, patreon.com slash Baker. one being a breakdown of an early Christian or an early Christian document, and the other being a tutorial of one of my songs, one of my original songs. And for $5 or more a month, you can get access to those and the whole catalog, which include wave files of almost all of my original music and all the audio versions of the chapters of my new book, Faithful Witness. So please go check that out. Finally, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can check out all the good work that BDK is doing there on the YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live. Go ahead and become a subscriber, hit the bell so you get notifications every time a new video drops. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 116. So I'm a pretty big fan of the Houston Astros, and recently they made it to the World Series again. This is the third time in five years that the Astros have made it, and people in my town were very excited, very concerned, very anxious about this this World Series. They wanted so bad, we wanted so bad for them to win. And of course, when we were talking about sports, there are always going to be some superstitions that people have that you see, well, whether they be rally caps or not shaving throughout the playoffs or wearing the same gear over and over and over, uh, people have superstitions about staying home rather than uh, watching a game in person. So if you like watch the game in person, then maybe you're responsible for their loss or calling a game won or lost. You know, if you said in the seventh inning that they were going to win and then the Astros didn't win, then you must have been responsible for them losing because of these words that you spoke at some point, you not even being a player on the field. You know, there are so many superstitions in our culture. Think about knocking on wood. You know, the actual origin of knocking on wood is believed to have come from the Celtic belief that spirits, good and bad, resided in trees who could either be called upon for protection or chased away by knocking on their home. Another common superstition would be throwing salt over your shoulder. And it's probably the most common superstition next to knocking on wood. And this, again, 
uh, has the belief that you're warding off evil by doing it. What about the uh, childhood saying, step on a crack, break your mother's back? Just a lot of ridiculous, ridiculous superstitions. There's one I remember someone telling me I was walking with this person side by side, and there was a pole coming up, and uh, we kind of, instead of walking around the pole together, the pole split us, and the person got kind of nervous because split the pole means your relationship is going to sever. Now, I'm still very good friends with this person to this day, so uh, maybe that wasn't something that we needed to be worried about. But before we get to judgmental, I think there might be some Christian superstitions as well. What about blessing the food? If you don't bless the food, then something's bad's going to happen to you, like it's going to poison you. You know, you don't really see many examples in the Bible of blessing the actual food. You do see Jesus blessing the food in one sense before the feeding of the 5,000, but the thing that you do see generally in the Bible is blessing God for his provision, blessing God, thanking God for the food, but not necessarily trying to make sure the food is going to actually do what it's designed to do in nourishing your body. What about eating before blessing the food? That's a big no-no, right? Big no-no. For those of y'all in Christian ministry, what about the order of service? For instance, if we do all these things in this specific way, we're going to get a specific desired result. You know, you have to have an opening song, then a prayer, then more songs, preferably going from fast and highly emotional to slower and more thought-provoking to put people in the mood to be a generous person toward God because they're feeling blessed. So if we have that climactic, uh, emotional song right before the offering. They'll maybe give more, and then we'll give the message, and then after the message, you have to have another song of response. Is that superstition, or could we do away with an order of service altogether? You know, in Acts, we see many things that the early church are devoted to when they come together, but we don't really see an order of service, do we? Another might be a crucifix. People thinking that if they have a crucifix uh, nailed up somewhere in the front of their home or hanging from their uh, rear view mirror or around their neck, then that itself will ward off evil. What about making the sign of the cross? Now, my daughter was um, my daughter was shooting a free throw to put her team in the lead, her middle school team in the lead in a basketball game, and I, I saw in the uh, in the video of this one of the girls on her team uh, making the sign of the cross right before uh, Zaniah shot. And does that mean that making the sign of the cross made the shot go in? What about kissing the rosary? Or how about saying the name of God exactly right? Like the sacred name, is it, is it Yahweh, Jehovah, Yehoah, Yahuwah? How do we say God's name? And if you don't say it right, does he not hear? But let's go into the Old Testament a little bit, and let's look at some biblical examples of superstition. 
Now, a lot of these biblical examples of superstition derive from people witnessing the power of God moving in a certain way, maybe through a certain person or a certain object. One example would be the Ark of the Covenant, right? People died because they didn't handle the Ark of the Covenant well. When the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant with them to battle, generally, their enemies were routed. But as time progressed and the priests began to be more corrupt, we begin to see priests who think that they can act however they want, but once they have the ark, once they get the Ark of the Covenant with them in battle, it doesn't matter how they acted because this Ark is going to destroy their enemies. You know, we see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the sons of Eli and how corrupt they were and how they were being oppressive toward the people. And God told Samuel, that he was going to put an end to Eli's bloodline and destroy Eli's sons. So let's pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies." Pausing for just a second, notice how the people are like, oh, we didn't bring the ark. The ark is going to deliver us. Notice how they're pushing God away and bringing close the ark. They're not saying that they need the Lord to deliver them. They're just like, we need the ark. Hmm. Continuing. So the people sent to Shiloh. And from there, they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were very afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smoke the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness." Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's look at another superstition. Moving forward in time, we're going to the time when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar 
have begun to encircle and lay siege to Jerusalem. And so the people in Jeremiah's day and Ezekiel's day, the, the leaders are extremely corrupt. They, as we see in Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9, are committing all kinds of abominations in the temple itself. And yet, looking at Jeremiah chapter 7, we see how these same corrupt priests will stand and proclaim these words about the temple as if proclaiming these words about the temple will protect them from the Babylonian hordes that God has sent because of the way they have defiled God's temple. Listen to this. It's Jeremiah 7 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I, will, that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. So interesting, they're like, we can act however we want, as long as we just say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, it's forever, right? Nobody's going to actually sack this place. This is the temple of the Lord. Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Put that confidence in the building rather than committing ourselves to the Lord. Superstition ain't the way. In the time of Moses, rebellious people were delivered by looking up at one point to a bronze or copper snake that God instructed Moses to make. And so everyone that looked to the snake when it was lifted up would be healed of their affliction. Well, this bronze serpent was kept by the people, and it too began to be an object of superstition. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, we read, Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, or Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of God, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among all those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Notice that Hezekiah was not like the people, clinging to the serpent, 
the bronze or copper serpent. Hezekiah clung to the Lord. And we see evidence of that by him breaking down, breaking apart that object of superstition. Moving to the New Testament, we come to John 5, and we see another superstition at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. We read, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. That parenthetical remark by John is basically explaining the belief of the people at the time. For if the first person into the water when it got stirred would be healed by an angel. Well, continuing, a man was laying there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well picked up his pallet, and began to walk. The Lord is the one who heals, not the pool. What about the name of Jesus? Can you just say the name of Jesus and it's going to ward off evil? In Acts 19, in the city of Ephesus, we see some Jewish exorcists who are putting their trust in the name of Jesus while rejecting the person of Jesus and trying to use the name of Jesus to cast demons out of people. Check this out. This is Acts 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, let me pause there for a second. So notice, they don't believe in Jesus. They're just seeing that there's some kind of power associated with the name of Jesus, and they think superstitiously in a sense, that they can use that same name without being under the authority of the person, and that name itself will have the power to accomplish what they want. Continuing verse 14, so seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish, Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Again, superstition ain't the way. Let's look at some of the early Christians, what they had to say about superstition. 
This is Clement of Alexandria in the Stromata or a Miscellanies, Book 2, Chapter 8. Clement of Alexandria writes, Superstition is indeed perturbation of mind, being the fear of demons that produce and are subject to the excitement of passion. On the other hand, consequently, the fear of God, who is not subject to perturbation, is free of perturbation. And so it's kind of interesting, this perturbation means like anxiety, worry, fear, that kind of thing. So the author, Clement, is saying that superstition comes out of fear, an ungodly fear. This is not the fear of the Lord. This is anxiety and fear. It gives rise to this superstition that has a way of keeping us in chains. But he contrasts that to the fear of the Lord, and he's saying, if you truly have fear of the Lord, you won't be affected by perturbation, which is anxiety. So this is like, we have anxiety, cast that upon the Lord. Uh, Bring those thoughts captive to God understanding that he is the ultimate sovereign. He is the ruler. Come and pray to him. Put yourself in subjection to him. Turn away from evil. Do good and pursue it, as Psalm 34 talks about concerning the fear of the Lord. Let's look at Tatian. So this is his in his Apology to the Greeks. This is in chapter 9. And he says, they give rise to superstition, talking about the demons. He says, such are the demons. These are they who laid down the doctrine of fate. Their fundamental principle was the placing of animals in the heavens for the creeping things on earth and those that swim in the waters and the quadrupeds on the mountains with which they lived when expelled from heaven. These they dignified with celestial honor in order that they might themselves be thought to remain in heaven and by placing the constellations there might make to appear rational the irrational course of life on earth. So here Tatian says that the demons are the ones who give rise to superstitions like a superstition, like astrology, that because you're born in a certain month and there's a certain astrological sign associated with that, then you are going to, by fate, by necessity, act a certain way, have a certain personality. I don't know. I know many people who are born in the same month as me and act nothing like me and me like them, for better or for worse, completely different types of people. Mark Felix writes in his apology called the Octavius in the early third century, starting in chapter 27, again writing about the connection between superstitions and impure spirits or evil spirits. He writes, these impure spirits, they dwell in shrines while sometimes they animate the fibers of the entrails, control the flights of birds, direct the lots, and are the cause of oracles involved in many falsehoods. For they are both deceived and they deceive inasmuch as they are both ignorant of the simple truth, and for their own ruin they confess not that which they know. Thus they weigh men downwards for heaven and call them away from the true God to material things. They disturb the life 
render all men unquiet, creeping also secretly into human bodies with subtlety as being spirits, they feign disease, alarm the minds, wrench about the limbs, that they may constrain men to worship them, being gorged with the fumes of altars or the sacrifices of cattle, that by remitting what they had bound, they may seem to have cured it. So it's interesting that uh, Felix, Mark Felix says that these demons, it's kind of like uh, the Hegelian dialectic, right? Like they cause the problem and then they offer this solution to get you to put faith in them as if they are your helper. Thus, they're creating these superstitions that keep people bound in chains and turning to them instead of to the true God. So, what should we do? What should we do to ward off evil? Well, Justin Martyr writes about this in his dialogue with Trifo around the year 160. In chapter 30, he writes, For we do continually beseech God by Jesus Christ to preserve us from the demons which are hostile to the worship of God, and whom we of old time served, in order that, after our conversion by him to God, we may be blameless. For we call him helper and redeemer, the power of whose name even the demons do fear. And at this day, when they are exercised in the name of Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, they are overcome. And thus it is manifest to all that his Father has given him so great power, by virtue of which demons are subdued to his name and to the dispensation of his suffering. So the, the first thing that Justin tells us to do is to pray, to come to God. Don't turn to these superstitious things of the world. Don't turn to a crucifix. Turn to the one who was crucified and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Turn to Jesus Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his in his letter, in chapter 4, verse 6, speaking of God, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. I think one of the main things other than turning to God for our source of protection and of security and blessing, we're called to repent of being double-minded. For instance, what is a better defense against the evil one? Something hanging from our neck or our rearview mirror or hanging outside our house? Or humility, humbling ourselves under God's hand? Which do you think is more effective? So we have two things there. Really turn to God to pray and stop being double-minded. Be single-minded and single-hearted. Be devoted to God. Draw near to God. Turn to Him. And as we begin to close, 
I want to offer you another story from the Octavius, that that apologetic work from Mark Felix. This is a story about a man and his two friends, one friend, Mark's friend named Octavius, and another friend whose name is uh, Cecilius. And Cecilius is a pagan. Octavius is a believer. And this is what happens when they get together one day in chapter 2. And thus, when in the early morning we were going towards the sea along the shore of the Tiber, Cecilius, observing an image of Serapis, which is an idol, raised his hand to his mouth, and as is the custom of the superstitious common people, pressed a kiss on it with his lips. So, these two Christians are walking with their non-Christian friend along the seashore, and their non-believing pagan friend, Cecilius, sees this idol, the Serapis, and does the common superstitious practice of the people kissing the idol for good luck, in a sense. Well, this does not go over well with Octavius, because Octavius witnesses his friend Mark not do anything or not say anything about it. And so Octavius first does not rebuke Cecilius, but actually rebukes Mark Felix. Octavius says, It is not the part of a good man, my brother Marcus, so to desert a man who abides by your side at home and abroad in this blindness of vulgar ignorance as that you should suffer him in such broad daylight as this to give himself up to stones, however they may be carved into images, anointed and crowned, since you know that the disgrace of this his error redounds in no less degree to your discredit than to his own. And so basically, since Cecilius is more Mark's friend than Octavius, Octavius turns to Felix, Mark Felix, who just let Cecilius do this this without saying a word. And he's like, hold on, man. Don't you love this guy? Don't you care for this guy? Why are you letting him continue in superstitious behavior that is keeping him from belief in the true Lord, Jesus Christ? You need to confront this stuff. Now, it doesn't have to be mean confrontation. You actually see Octavius and Cecilius go back and forth in this dialogue. And though they are very... um, convinced in their own minds of the truth of their beliefs, they are respectful throughout the entire thing. Similar to what Peter writes in his first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter writes to believers to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet doing it with gentleness and reverence. So superstition is something that we need to be able to confront. And we don't have to do it in a rude way, but we need to speak out against these superstitious beliefs, particularly within our Christian families. Let's be double-minded no longer and instead sanctify Christ alone as Lord in our hearts.
answer comes as blood from forehead falls I can't escape the firing squad Here I am amongst the chains and fits I always knew that it would come to this Now if they're gonna have a prayer at all I can't escape the firing squad But I sing Tell of your great faithfulness, O oh Lord And I am sure, just look around and you can see the floor They pierce and taunt and they divide my clothes Their only hope to have a change of heart I can't escape the firing squad I ain't running from the firing squad